Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is the conversation I had myself with our friends on the podcast, um, Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal and Helena Coben in relation to the killing of our friend Dr. Rifa Alarir. Um, it is a emotional conversation about memories, anecdotes, stories and some readings of, of pieces written by Rifat and I'd urge you all to listen to it. I'd also urge you all to please help us keep this show on the road. The Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors. We rely entirely on listeners to pay it forward and keep the mics on, lights on, and new projects like the podcast going. So if you're listening and you like what we do, please click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the very top of the podcast you're listening to right now. It may seem crass to be asking for support in the wake of the conversation that we just had, but without your support, we can't have those conversations at all. In fact, without those support, there is no Tortoise Shack, there is no podcast, there is no Echo Chamber podcast. And I hope a lot of you agree that this course would be lessened without that platform, without that space that we've managed to build that has been so beneficial to so many in getting stories out there and helping helping people. We are activists first and foremost. And joining us is the easiest bit of activism you can do. So one more time patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack that's enough of that over to the podcast hello everyone and welcome to palcast uh, this is yusuf jamal speaking to you from istanbul on december 8 um, 4 p.m um, Joined today by Helena Coben, the president of Just Word Education, and producer Tony um, Groves. Uh, good to have you again, um, Helena and, and, and Tony. Uh, although today is a very tragic day, having lost our dear mentor and friend, Derfat al Arair, in an Israeli strike two days ago in Gaza. Yeah, it's just um, really difficult to pull my thoughts together today, but um, I was proud to have published Rifat's book, um, his the anthology of short stories he wrote called Gaza Writes Back, short stories from young writers in Gaza, Palestine. Um, Yusuf, I know you contributed a really powerful story to that. A little bit later, I'd like to read just a couple of paragraphs from Rifat's introduction to that. And I just wish we'd had chance to have uh, Rafat here on our palcast. But um, Tony, you've spoken to him. Yeah. In the past. Yeah. Um, Rafat was the glue that held it all together. Um, one of my longest friends in in Gaza was obviously taught by him, Hannah Salah, and um, that's how I was introduced because she adored him as as a lecturer, as a as a teacher, as an educator. And then, you know, like this podcast wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for him because he introduced me. You know, uh, he sent me Yusuf's phone number um, one day. Uh, Yusuf introduced me to you, Helena. I know Yunus. I know Mohammed. I know Mo El Khatib in, in, in London. I know people in Copenhagen who saw her out there in the world using their voice because of Rifat. And, and that is the power that, um, that he had, that it was, you know, he he challenged other people to find their voices, and I and I can share one one quite 
I find this humorous. One of our one of our other contributors, uh, Afaf Al Najjar, was a student, a literature student in in um, in the university where Rifa taught, and she was afraid to take his, his courses because he was she she found him quite intimidating, and uh, she had told me that uh, that just as the conflict started. That uh, that if the conflict ends, she's gonna go back and find the courage to take his classes because she, you know, she wanted to complete that. And I know that he, that's that's the level of impact he had, not just here but everywhere. And and yeah, I'm very sorry to both of you who knew him a lot more and a lot longer than I did. But the man, um, I thought the man was immortal, uh, and and I think maybe in some ways he is because of those impact those people whose lives he's impacted. Yeah, he, um, Rifat taught English literature and world, uh, literature at the Islamic University of Gaza. And one of his uh, recent things on, on Instagram where they had asked me a question and somebody asked him the question, what are some of your favorite pieces of writing or art or music? And his list was John Donne, Shakespeare, Blake, Shelley, T.S. Eliot. This is just a part of who Rifat was. That's totally right, Helena. As a student of Rifat, and there are hundreds of students, if not thousands, who Rifat taught uh, in Gaza at different places, uh, including at the Islamic University of Gaza, which was destroyed uh, during Israel's genocide uh, in Gaza. Um, I can attest to, you know, the impact of, of Rifat on his students. Uh, Rifat established a relationship with his students that went beyond classrooms. Uh, he taught us to be critical, uh, to think critically, um, and always to, to, to think outside uh, the box. I do believe that uh, Rifat created his own box too. <laughs> he did not, you know, um, accept uh, frames and stereotypes and discourses presented to the Palestinians. He was the greatest storyteller uh, in Gaza, and he encouraged students. Uh, in 2008, 2009, he told his students uh, in Gaza, soon after Israel's invasion um, of the coastal enclave ended, that they should write short stories as you know their homework. So we wrote multiple short stories and he chose 24 short stories um, from his students and published them in Gaza Writes Back. I remember during the editorial process how he encouraged, you know, encouraged me and tried to make the um, story become more creative and more readable. He was multi, you know, talented. He, he, he was into literature, into politics, into philosophy. Uh, he was very good with creative writing, with social media. He would encourage his students always to write and to be creative. I mean, he was able to give us a traditional homework, but he chose not to because he wanted to give us the voice that we need to, to, to tell the story. And uh, I remember attending his TEDx talk in Gaza. It's online. It's on YouTube. And uh, he spoke of how his grandmother and his mother had an impact on him becoming a storyteller because 
uh, growing up, he would, you know, be next to his grandmother and she would tell him stories about Palestine. And this had left a huge impact uh, on him. And he used, you know, storytelling as a tactic too, telling his stories to, to his um, kids during Israel's uh, escalations. Um, but unfor- unfortunately, this time Israel did not give him enough time to survive and tell another story. Uh, but as Tony said, Rifat is immortal. Rifat words are immortal. They will continue to live forever. Uh, I remember during our travels together in the United States uh, that he used to accuse me of stealing his lines, <laughs> which was true, uh, <laughs> such as uh, Palestine is a story away. Uh, he always viewed Palestine as, you know, within the framework of, of storytelling. Um, he always reminded me of this African proverb that says, until lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. And Rifat was one of our lions telling our stories from Gaza. And he stood to his word until the last minute. He did not leave Gaza City although it was very dangerous. And uh, I just received some voice notes from a friend of Rifat, very close friend of Rifat today, uh, who met Rifat a day before he was killed. He was the last person to, to meet him. And Rifat was, was tired this time. And, and he said, I'm tired. I have 50 people to feed. I feel tired. I want this to, to, to come to an end. He also said that... Um, if he survives this war, he will dedicate his time full time. He always did, in fact, but maybe he thought that he, he had more time to dedicate to storytelling, that he wants to become a storyteller and only invest in storytelling. Um, uh, I also uh, read the news um, according to the uh, Euromed's uh, president, Dr. Rami Abdo, that the Israeli intelligence called him a day before and they asked him to evacuate the school where he was sheltering, um, telling him that um, they can like locate him and kill him. And because he wanted to save lives, he left the school. And on the same day, he, he was killed in his uh, sister's house. Uh, his sister was killed, her, her four daughters and his, his brother. Um, one last note before we, we talk more about Rifat. Uh, is that he walked miles every day. He walked up to 25,000 steps, according to, to his friend who sent us the voice notes, so that he could have access to signal, so that he could tell the story. He told us that he was sitting in the middle of the night in a very dark place, in a very dangerous place, just because that place had signal, so that he could tell the story. So Rifat believed in the power of, of storytelling. And that's why we, we need to carry on his legacy and tell our story a generation after another. Thank you, Yusuf. I'm going to just read a little bit from um, the beginning of uh, his introduction to Gaza Writes Back, which he prefaces with a quote from Chinua Achebe, um, where, he's, where Achebe says, Storytellers are a threat. They threaten all champions of control. They frighten usurpers of the right to freedom of the human spirit. 
And then he says um, something also in, in his introduction. There is a Palestine that dwells inside all of us, a Palestine that needs to be rescued, a free Palestine where all people, regardless of color, religion, or race, coexist, a Palestine where the meaning of the word occupation is only restricted to what the dictionary says rather than those plenty of meanings and connotations of death, destruction, pain, suffering, deprivation, isolation, and restrictions that Israel has injected the word with. These horrendous Israeli practices and many others, Palestinian writers, particularly the young ones, capture and materialize in the form of narratives in an attempt to make sense of the senseless context around them and in search of their Palestine. Theirs, while it is while it sometimes is rendered metaphorically, can be a beautiful reality. Palestine is a martyr away, a tear away, a missile away, or a whimper away. Palestine is a story away. Thanks for that. Helena. And I, 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 I say that Palestine is a rifat away. I think if we have more people like rifat which is impossible to have because Rifat was very unique many different ways. If we have five more people like Rifat, storytellers, the Palestinian narrative will be in a totally different place. He was a fierce force. He was a powerhouse, you know, training people. I remember that he organized dozens of training courses, workshops that... um Many people attended, including myself, especially young people, his students and students from outside his classes on creative writing, on feature writing, on news writing. He even trained people here in Turkey on, on news writing. He was everywhere. Um, and we can see the product. The students of Rifat now are uh, university lecturers and authors and writers everywhere in the world. Um from Australia to, to France to, to the United States to the United Kingdom, they remember him and they remember his legacy. And that's why Rifat is immortal. Israel cannot kill him. Rifat is an idea. And, you know, ideas cannot be killed. He's there. We see him. He's watching over us, telling the story again and again. You would, you would be surprised that even some social media accounts he created them and he started telling the story of, of people in Gaza. There is this social media account that tells the stories of martyrs killed by Israel during this genocide that gives them faces, names. It was created by Rifat. No one knows that, maybe. So he has been very active during, you know, even during this time when he doesn't have access to food, when, when he had 50 people to care for. He made sure that he tells the story. Um, and personally, I am forever, you know, indebted to his knowledge and wisdom and guidance. And I will always remember him as an immortal person. Uh, can I come in and just say a quick thing on the uh, one of the jokes he had, and he didn't let me in on the punchline for ages, was that he used to call me his second favorite Irish person. And he used to say it to me in, in off, uh, you know, in, in WhatsApp calls or little notes or, and he'd always say, Tony, that's why you're my second favorite Irish person. And I mistakenly believed 
that uh, all along I was in some sort of battle with Tyg Hickey, who you might know, the comedian and satir- satirical actor who does a lot of activism for Palestine. And that's who I thought I was competing with. And I, and Tyg's from Cork, so obviously Cork, Dublin, we have a rivalry and I'm not happy to be second place to any Cork man. But it was only recently where where if it said actually Tony no um you you're 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 uh, Tiger's third you're actually behind Bobby Sands and I thought to myself well I I can take that because I can't I can't uh, actually compete with a with a legend and a, and a story and a myth and and someone who is immortal and I think there's a nice um a nice uh, message there because as 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 Yusuf has clearly put it. Rifat fill, fills that void for many of us in, in that space for, you know, you said Palestine is just a Rifat away. I believe that is very, very true. Um, yeah, I, a lot of tears, um, from people who I know, a lot of tears, tears here on, on this podcast right now. Um, but, but guys, he lifted us all up with that cheeky sense of humor. And I told you, he didn't let me know that I was, uh, that I was second only to Bobby Sands until, <laughs> until I got really furious about it, you know. So, uh, that was his sense of humor. Yeah. To- talking of his sense of humor, you know, I, I just rewatched the episode of the electronic intifada, um, webinar slash podcast that they did with him on December 1st. So recently, one week ago. It was his last appearance on, on their podcast. Um, and he only had, um, power for, for just a couple of minutes, but it, he, he was there. He was smiling. He was laughing. He was joking because, um, Ali Abu Nima, the host said to him something like, you know, I don't know if Roger Waters is watching this podcast, but even if he is, I want to tell you that you're bigger than Roger Waters. And so then Rifat threatened to start singing. And, you know, it, it was such a sweet moment, but that's how he was. He, he also had this amazing creative imagination that had no limits. I mean, he wrote one of the stories in the book about an Israeli on one side of the wall and an, an, Arab farmer, a Palestinian farmer on the other side of the wall and how they both shared like a time when there was a storm and, and the, the wall provided them with some shelter from, from the rain. He was quite prepared to use his creative imagination to think what it would be like to be an Israeli soldier suffering from PTSD. You know, I mean, the, the, the size of this guy's spirit was just amazing. And um, if people get the chance, I urge you to read um, Max Blumenthal has a lovely little memory of Rifat on the Grey Zone, where he talks about um, Max, who is Jewish, and his very good friend, Dan Cohen, who is Jewish, and the relationship they built with Rifat and, and how Dan Cohen went to see Rifat teach a a class on the Merchant of Venice. And at the end, he asked the, Rifat asked the students whether they had more sympathy for, um, Shylock, Shylock or for Othello. And, and most of them said they had more sympathy for Shylock. So like, where does this just expansive human empathy and capacity to th- 
think of other people's lives? Where does it come from? Where will it go to? I mean, we need to carry it forward. Yes, Helena, I, I, you just reminded me of a poem Rifat wrote uh, titled I Am You. Two steps, one, two. Look in the mirror, the horror, the horror, the butt of your M16 on my cheekbone, the yellow patch it left, the bullet-shaped scar expanding, snaking across my face, the heartache following, out of my eyes dripping, out of my nostrils piercing, my ears flooding the place, like it did to you 70 years ago or so. I am just you. I am your past haunting, your present and your future. I strive like you did. I fight like you did. I resist like you resisted. And for a moment, I would like your tenacity as a model. Were you not holding the barrel of the gun between my bleeding eyes? One, two, the very same gun, the very same bullet that had killed your mom and killed your dad is being used against me by you. That's, that's Rifat. You know, he always thought outside the books. And as I said, he created his own box. I remember one of the stories in Gaza writes back, um, like goes inside the psyche of an Israeli soldier when he goes to his bedroom, when he goes to his kitchen and what he thinks after, you know, coming back from Palestine or coming back from Gaza. Um, so Rifat was revolutionary in many different ways. In fact, he did his BA in English language and literature at the Islamic University of Gaza, uh, which he taught um, at uh, until he was killed. Uh, and he did his MA in UCL, University College London, and he wrote his master thesis on Jerusalem in Palestinian and Israeli literature. Uh, his PhD thesis uh, was on John Donne as a revolutionary poet. Uh, and he, he got his PhD from the University of Putra, Malaysia, UPM in, 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 in Malaysia. Uh, so, you know, he has been all over the place. He had taught Palestinian and non-Palestinian poetry and literature. We studied about multi, you know, revolutionary figures in history in Rifat's classes, uh, including Palestinian, you know, poetry and literature. Uh, I remember one time, so an example of this is Malcolm X. So we read Malcolm X. And uh, one of my classmates, Muhammad Suleiman, who's now a PhD uh, lecturing in Australia said I wish if I were uh, if I were born black after reading Malcolm X um, so the power you know of Rifat and his suggestions and reads to, to his students uh, we also uh, read Palestinian literature and, and poetry Murid al-Barouthi I saw Ramallah Sharon and my mother-in-law in fact I met Suad uh, al-Amiri in Philadelphia just two months ago and I told her, I told her some lines from her um, novel, and she said, "How do you know?" I said, "I said it, you know, your your novel." And it was Rifat who taught us about Sharon and my mother-in-law. I saw Ramallah by Murid Parouthi, and um, in fact, he said to to the class that if any one of of us reads Sharon, um, sorry, 
if any of us reads uh, I saw Ramallah by Murid al-Barwuti that they, he, he would get uh, an extra grade. He was very <laughs> mean with the grades, I have to say. But, you know, this shows how he encourages his students to go beyond, like, you know, books and texts taught at the university even. Um, in, in another instance, he said if any of the students, and I took his translation class, uh, writes 1,000 new unusual words that he didn't know, she didn't know before, uh, write them down, and each word of this 1,000 words should be written and like explained in two different sentences. So let's say that we have the word um, absolute. And then I had to write uh, 2,000 sentences, two sentences for each, and translate them into Arabic. And the way I wrote them, that, that was his condition, that if people even read it in, in, in English, they would be able to figure out the meaning based on the context. And he thought no one was going to do this homework, and he gave us five, five grades. I was the only student in his class. Uh, to do this homework. So he was very tough. And that's why, you know, the <laughs> the quality of many of his students is is great because he was tough in a good way and we appreciate his toughness in, in, in this regard. But he was very sincere. You know, he had a very good heart. Um, I flew out of Cairo with him. So I changed my flight so that I could get on the same uh, plane with him. We were deported together to Cairo airport from the Rafah crossing. And as we were like approaching the Malaysian uh, capital, Rifat also went uh, to Kuala Lumpur for his PhD studies, as I mentioned. And I was going for my master's studies at the time. He asked me, where are you going to? I told him, to be honest, I do not have any place. I, I did not know that I, I would be able to travel because I tried to travel five times at the time. And because of the situation at the border, I would be sent back and then it was very crowded and difficult to travel. So the day I travel, it was also the day Rifat travel. And I told him, I, I have no place. So he took me with him to his place for three weeks. Imagine, he was a great man. And I hurt him when after three weeks of taking care of me and taking me in his house and feeding me, I went to... Um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, and I had dinner there, and Rifat was invited later. And the dinner was great uh, when I went by myself, and I, I wrote on Facebook, uh, now I can say that I had dinner. And Rifat almost killed me for that. Uh, I had to buy him a watermelon you know, to, so that you, he could you, forgive me. You know, when we started this podcast that I was letting him know, he said, uh, we were, we, we were, uh, Yusuf's plan is to replace me. <laughs> he said, he said, he said to me, that's what, he said, don't fall for it, Tony. Yusuf is my arch nemesis and his plan is to replace me. <laughs> so, yeah, so we had that. Now, we had a lot of inside jokes and I, I don't think that, that even when Rifat, is physically gone that there's any human being on earth can that that could replace him he's re irreplaceable he's he's um one of a kind as he used to say can, can i address some of the, the the things that have been said about rifid over the years indeed and but since his death um speaking from a media perspective there's obviously been people who have 
taken offense to some of his social media output, some of the things. And by the way, all of it, um, all of it, none of it stands the test of time. Things that he was critical of were pro- he was proven to be correct on. And that, let's be unequivocal about that. Even the likes of Haaretz have shown that the, the things that he, that he said were untrue were then debunked later, even after he'd previously debunked them. But I want to make, want to, you want to focus in, if you don't mind, very briefly. BBC called him controversial. The New York Times called him contentious. Um, I've seen people are upset about that. I genuinely have seen people online are upset about this description of Rifat. I would say he would wear it as a badge of honour because he railed against that cult of civility and particularly against the passive voice of some media reporting. You know, it would frequently see over the last few years, but indeed more so over the last 60 days when when atrocities took place and, and this, you know, um, 100, 100 uh, people in Gaza dead, Rifat would be one of the first people to tweet, who killed them? You know, he would be the first person to say, make sure we tell them that it was the occupation who did it. He would challenge media to be better. They did not like him for it. Many thought that that was, but I I often refer to it um, in Irish terms, I refer to it as the cult of civility. That, you know, the the guy who, who has his foot on your neck is very upset that you're not complimentary enough about the quality of the leather of the boot that's stomping on you. And Rifat was never going to, to actually be the type of person he was unapologetic yes he was acerbic yes he was abrasive but a lot of that came from his really dark sense of humor he used to say he had the irish gene in him and that we would <laughs> he would but he said he said he had this irish gene in me and i think you know i i i i don't know if you saw the screenshot i posted the other day where i said where when I showed, uh, I, I had a pint of Guinness pouring beautifully from my local, and I said, "I said I'm having this one for you." He said, "Yeah, but what's your excuse for having the other ones, Tony?" You know, he was. <laughs> <laughs> he knew. He knew. He knew exactly who I was straight away, and he and he was able to make me smile with just a simple one line like that. So yes, maybe go go ahead. Call him controversial. Call him contentious. He was loved. He will always be loved, and and I I actually I take inspiration from the fact that he was unapologetic right up until till the end. In fact, it was Rifat who uh, we have a fr- another friend uh, who went to school uh, with Rifat. He used to call them uh, to call Rifat Abu Fahur. <laughs> it's like the guy who digs into things and finds things, and um, it was Rifat who found the uh, Israel Project 2009 Global Language Dictionary, which became popular uh, during Israel's genocide in Gaza just recently. It was Rifat who found this document in 2011, 2010, when no one ever <laughs> knew of it in, in, in the Middle East. And he uh, led a project to translate it into Arabic and was in fact translated into Arabic and published in, in, in Gaza. Um, and you know, he paid much attention to framing and telling the story using our own terms. We should not be, you know, prisoners of, of the counter narrative. We have our own unique narrative that, that, you know, tells our story using our own beliefs and terms and, 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 and words. And Rifat was a great believer of, of, of our narrative and how we tell this story. Um, and that's why he, 
you know, would tell people sometimes and media outlets such as the BBC, uh, which in, in, in its reporting somehow paved the way for the Israeli army to break into Palestinian ha- uh, hospitals in Gaza, to tell them, stop, this is not how, you know, reporting is done. And, you know, when Rifat was physically with us, he, he was controversial for them. Uh, and when he's gone, he's controversial for them because he tells them things that they do not want to hear. But for us, Rifat is not controversial. Rifat was a giant. Rifat was a saint. Rifat was a great intellectual, a writer, a father, you know, a brother, a friend, a comedian sometimes, and a storyteller. And this is how we want to remember Rifat. Yeah, I would like to just ex- extend my condolences to his wife slash widow Nuseba and his six children and that amazing extended family for which he cared and for which he took responsibility. I'm, I'm, I can't think of the situation that they are in right now or indeed the other two million people of Gaza where we know that what the Israeli ground forces have been doing over the past week has been exponentially worse, I think, than what they were doing back in November and October. Um, I'd like to take this chance to to read Rifat's last poem and then, um, Yusuf, whatever you want to do to wrap up. Um, People listening out there, um, we are still remembering our good friend Rifat Alarir, who was killed yesterday in Gaza, almost certainly deliberately, along with some of his family members, by the Israeli military, who I guess just could not stand the power of his storytelling. And people have written that... um, what the Israeli military is doing in Gaza is a kind of mass-produced assassination program, um, and, and sadly, he he was a part of it. But this is just a beautiful poem that he pinned at the top of his uh, Twitter account because he knew that there was a good chance that he would die. This is what I'm thinking. He knew that there was a good chance that he would die and be killed, be killed by the Israelis in as part of this genocide in Gaza. So this is what he pinned at the top of his Twitter account. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings. Make it white with a long tail. And of course, this is a reference to the way that so many children in Gaza love to go down to the beach and fly kites. Children in the West Bank fly kites because the kite can soar into the air where they can't and can see over walls and can see over oceans. Sorry, that's my little exegesis there. Mm -hmm. So make it white with a long tail. So that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, sees the kite, my kite you made, flying up above, and thinks for a moment an angel is there. 
bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope. Let it be a tale. And I just note there that that obviously there is a pun. He has the pun of the tail of the of of the kite, and the the last tale. Let it be a tale, is the tale stop, told by a storyteller. That's absolutely right, Helena. Based on based on my knowledge of of Rifat, he was very much into pun, and um, I also have a quote to share. Uh, Rifat sent me this quote on Sunday, uh, and I told him, Rifat, this is what I told him in Arabic. You are the master of people. You are the best of people. I want you to give me a quote, and he sent me a quote for an article I am working. Uh, on so these are his last words speaking of the destruction he saw in Gaza city uh, he said i strolled through the western areas of gaza city and witnessed a level of destruction reminiscent of world war ii the extent of wanton devastation is beyond words it feels as though tanks played a deliberate and methodical game of destruction targeting homes, buildings, businesses, infrastructure, schools, mosques, trees, power lines, and poles. The way Israel is ravaging Gaza suggests repercussions that will shape life for generations uh, to come, said Rafat. Uh, and I feel, you know, very humbled to, to be uh, one of the, um, you know, last people that he, he spoke to. Uh, in this life but again the connection will not be lost Rifat is there we feel him everywhere he's in Ireland he's in Washington DC he's in Gaza he's looking over us watching over us from the sky uh, watching over an army of bloggers and writers young people he trained in Gaza who are scattered just like flowers everywhere in the world thanks to Rifat thanks to his guidance and, and support. He gave without expectations. He was very generous in, in his life, and he was the greatest of people. We will remember him as a great intellectual, a writer, son of Shija'iyya, as he used to call himself. He was very proud of his town. He's a native of Gaza. He was very proud of olive trees and olives and Chilies every time he would get strawberries, olives strawberries, and, uh, strawberries, oil, olive oil in Malaysia. I remember when he got these items, he was so proud. He took pictures, he was very happy. This is Rifat, a happy person who spread knowledge, joy, and resistance everywhere in, in, in the world. Thank you, Yusuf. Um, and I just want to just say that I'm so sorry. Um, I for your loss for his beautiful children, absolutely beautiful children who he adored, absolutely adored, and um, uh, and everybody who has lost uh, one of the one of the most influential men, as I said, folks, I I thought he I taught him immortal. I believe he is. I believe he. I believe he's. I believe he is immortal. And um, 
it, it, I'm glad we got to share this. I'm glad uh, we had to have this conversation. And um, and thank you, Yusuf, for, for for sharing all those anecdotes, and and Helena for for those wonderful readings of his of his work. It's it's really important that people understand um, the storyteller because when he says, you know, um, let it be a tale, his story is not over. His story absolutely is not over. And as Rifat said, we will live to tell his story. He said, if I must die, you should live to tell my story. Let it be a tale. And Rifat's tale is no, uh, is, is no similar to any other tale. He was very unique to many people. And we will always remember him with love, joy, and resistance. This is useful, Jamal, speaking to you from Istanbul, and I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to you uh, next week about the situation in Gaza and the genocide taking place there.